stuff. My life, it's a challenge. Every day I face new decisions, new crucial choices. I recognize what I choose to do today affects my future. I can't afford to waste my time in the dead-end cycle of mediocrity. Good isn't good enough. For me, it's all about best practices. My guess is most of us have been part of a team or leadership or a group or maybe you're part of government or whatever. And, and at some point you came across a procedure that was the dumbest thing in the world and you asked somebody, why do we do this? Because it doesn't add anything to the bottom line. It's not healthy for our organization. Besides that, it's just generally crazy. And, and you went and talked to your supervisor and asked about it and your supervisor said, you do it because it is SOP, Standard Operating Procedure. How many of us have changed standard operating procedure to stupid operating procedures, right? Because it's just a lot of stuff. If you ever, don't even get me started about government because they have a lot of standard operating procedures that make me scratch my head. But, you know, and, and, and that becomes a because thing. You know, why do we do it? You don't have to have a good reason for it. It's because it's SOP, it's standard operating procedure. Maybe it's just because the economy tanked, maybe because it, it was, I mean, somebody got a clue, but... Gently over the years, some organizations, some government agencies, some educational institutions have said we have got to scrap the idea of standard operating procedure and we have got to use a different because. We've got to say it's because it is best practices. Best practices is a process that supplants and replaces standard operating procedure. And here's how it starts. And many of you have been part of a team that's, that's determined what, what best practices are. It starts with what we call promising practices. In other words, in a, in a specific situation, there is a practice that works. And it may not work outside that one single situation, but you call it a promising practice. But, and then after that, it needs to be field tested and finally becomes evidence-based. And then it is a best practice. And at that point, you can say, we do this because it is best practices. And I don't know about you, but I feel much better when I know I am doing something as a leader of an organization, not because it's SOP, but because it's best practices. I know when I talk to our banks or when I talk to our accountants or other leaders that we deal with here at New Spring, I really want to know what is best practices. Because every once in a while they'll say, you could do this, but this is best practices. Well, you know, of course, I'm not here to talk about business. I'm not here to talk about education necessarily or, you know, government. I want to talk to you about best practices in your own personal life. Because here's the thing. I'm convinced that the average American is still operating with standard operating procedures. Many of us have developed standard operating procedures, and we don't know why we do these things. We just do them because it's SOP. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying, and by the way, I'm going to talk about stuff that I have issues with, so please know this is not a religious superstar talking to you. I, I, I need to just practice in my own life. But some of us have standard operating procedures that really, if we thought about it very long, it would leave us scratching our head. Like, like some of us will know what it's like to have a friend who calls us and says, hey, why don't we go to dinner or why don't we go out and, and go to a bar and so you drink and you drink a little bit more than you should drink and you drink a whole lot more than you should drink. And the next morning you find yourself waking up holding on to the toilet and looking into the toilet thinking, how did I get here? I will never do this again. But it happens again and again and again. Why? why? It's a standard operating procedure. Or we're just coming off the Christmas season. Some of us charge the credit cards up to our eyebrows. And in February, we're going to be making 24% interest minimum payments that we won't pay off until the year 2727. <laughs> and why do we do it? 
well, it's just SOP, it's standard operating procedure. Or there'll be, <laughs> there'll be some of us who will eat four times as much as we need to eat to survive. I just got, I took a week off and went to Southern California and I, I had to eat every meal out. Is it just me or are the portion sizes becoming gargantuan? I was in a Mexican restaurant in San Diego and, and a server brought a meal out in front of me and, and set it down and I thought, where are the other 11 people who are going to help me eat this? And I look around and I think, do people really eat this much? And then I juxtapose that against my flight out and my flight back because I am convinced that just as portion sizes are getting bigger, airplane seats are getting smaller. <laughs> that is a bad combination. And why do we eat four times as, as much as we, we need to? I mean, certainly we don't need to do it to, to stay alive. And, and honestly, you can tell I have an issue with that. But most of us do it because it is SOP. It is standard operating procedure. Well, what if we could change that? What if we could go from standard operating procedure to best practices? And here's what we would have to do. We would have to change our way of developing practices because, frankly, most of us have developed the practices that we have from watching television, watching people, peers. I'm going to lose all of you who are under 40 right now. I want to talk to the really old people in the audience. Before we had video cams, there was something called eight millimeter cameras. All of you who are baby boomers, you grew up with parents who had an eight millimeter camera and you went on vacation or you went on a trip and that was one of the things they did, just shot pictures. And there's no audio with those for all of you who are under 40, under 45 maybe. So that's the reason why every time you look at eight millimeter film, everybody's waving because what else can you do? The oldest footage of me, I'm, I'm about two years old. I'm in an amusement park. I'm sitting in a kiddie ride. It's a little cart pulled by, no, not a real horse, a plastic horse. And, and there, there are two sets of reins. And I am with a woman driver who's about three years old, and I am two. And I have no idea what to do. And as the camera zooms in on me, you can see me studying intently the girl next to me as she slaps the reins on the horse. And you see that moment where I look down, find my reins, pick my reins up, and slap the horse. And I think, there I am at two years of age. That is pretty much how we develop our practices. Just what we see around us. Television, peers, everybody does it. Standard operating procedure. For five weeks, I want to take us in a different direction. I want to get us to think about what would be life lived according to best practices. In other words, when somebody asks us why we do something, why do you spend $6 a pack for cigarettes to breathe in carcinogens, we wouldn't have to say because it's SOP. What if, what if we didn't say, well, I ate this much because it was set down in front of me? Or, or what, if, what if we say I, I just charged up my credit, didn't say I charged up my credit cards because it's SOP? What if we were actually able to think about what would be best practices? Well, this morning I want to start the series, and I want to take you to the Bible because the Bible talks about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, here's what the Bible says. And time out before I read it. Because many of us don't come from traditional religious backgrounds. And oftentimes you have the advantage on the rest of us. If you come from traditional religious background, chances are you may have grown up thinking everything is either wrong or right. You know, when you get up in the morning, God's got a specific plan for your life. Do I wear the brown socks or the blue socks? I mean, ask God, God, which socks do I wear? The fact of the matter is, there's just a lot of things in life that are neutral. It's not either wrong or right. They're just choices. Some of the choices are good. Some of the choices are better. Thankfully, some of the choices are best. And the Bible addresses that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. Everything is permissible. 
And you understand that's within a context. It doesn't mean robbing a bank, shooting your neighbor is permissible. It just says it means those choices that are neutral. Everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Or I love the way the Living Bible has it. It may be perfectly legal, but it may not be best. How do you and I know what best practices are? Guys, I'm going to give it away right now. I am convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. And anytime you open God's Word, you get evidence-based best practices. They have been field-tested, and they are universal. But these are best practices. Now, I had to cull this down from about 16 so I can smell sequel coming next year. But today, I want to start giving you what I believe are five key best practices. Here is the first one, very simply stated just in two words, live smart. Live smart. You ever, do you know anybody right now that you're thinking of when I ask the question, do you know of somebody you would love to just reach out and grab by the shoulders and say, hey, smarten up. Live smart. What would it take to live smart? I want to give you three thoughts. You check these out. See what you think. And if you think they're worthy, why don't you employ this as a best practice? Here's the first thought about living smart. Choose your road. Well, before we get into that, let's think about what the Bible says about living smart. In Ephesians 5, verse 17, it says, don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. So we want to live smart. And the first thing we need to do in order to live smart is to choose your road. Here's the reason why I say this. I am convinced that the average American in 2012 is not even thinking about roads. We are, and, and if I hear this expression one more time, I'm going to kick something solid. We are in the moment. Where do we go? I know where we get that. We get that from Buddhism. But, but the idea is, I don't know how I wound up here, but the truth of the matter is we wind up at destinations because we are on roads. Three miles south of here on K96 is a turnpike entrance. And immediately when you get into the turnpike, you get a choice between south or north. Well, why do you make the choice of the road that you get on? Well, because of destinations. Fort Worth is my hometown. If I want to go to Fort Worth, I, go, I choose south. Merrill's and I love to get away to Kansas City. I want to go to Kansas City, I go north. I think about my destination, and then I choose my road. What I want to challenge you and me to do today is to choose our road thinking about destinations. Where do you want to be? Let me ask you a question. Where do you want to be in five years? Where do you want to be in 30 years? Most of all, where do you want to be when this life shuts down and eternity begins? Where do you want to be? Think about it and choose your road. Destinations are at the end of roads. Destinations don't just happen. One of the most frustrating experiences I've had in 35 years of pastoring is to have someone come into to my office whose life is in a total catastrophe, and they're shrugging their shoulders saying, Mark, I don't know how I got here. And I want to say, don't you realize there was a road that led you here? You're at a destination. There was a clearly marked road that led to this destination. Choose your road. In the book of Joshua, back in the Old Testament, you have an aging leader who talked to a new generation. And here's what he said, serve the Lord alone. Now, the word alone there, I think, infers that they might be inclined to do what Americans do, and that's dabble. They might dabble a little bit with following God, dabble a little bit with materialism and other ways of thinking. And Joshua said, serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served, 
or will it be the gods of the people in whose land you live in? But Joshua said, pick your road, pick your road. Guys, the truth of the matter is, it's not like the YMCA where everybody gets a trophy. I do think that that is in 2012, the idea that most Americans have, that really it doesn't matter as long as you're sincere, just give it your best shot and everybody gets a trophy at the end. That's not even true with something as simple as, as diabetes. If you, go into di if you have diabetes and you go into a pharmacy and there are all kinds of serums, you could say any serum would work here. That's not true. Insulin works. You, you, it's not even true in math class. You go into a math class, you get an exam, any, any answer will not work. There is a right answer, there are wrong answers. And we need to pick the path that we want to be on. I may surprise you here today, but I just want to say this. If you want to be a Buddhist, be all in. Be the best Buddhist you can be. I mean, because after all, it's a road, it's a path, it's got a destination. You will reap its benefits, you will, you will reap its consequences, but, but be all in. If you're going to be a Buddhist, don't dabble. Be all in. If you're going to be a materialist and you're going to live for things and possessions, then be all in. Don't, don't mess with following God. I mean, why, why, why waste a Sunday morning or a Saturday night in church? If you live for things, if you live for possessions and live for money, then be all in. Be 100% in. Joshua's saying, choose your path. If you're going to be an atheist, be a good one. Have some integrity as an atheist. If somebody steps on you to get a promotion and knifes you in the back, congratulate them. That's Darwinian, man. That's survival of the fittest. If you get mugged on the street corner and everybody stands around and nobody comes to your aid and, and you get hurt and, and you're wondering where is everybody else, don't be surprised. They're just being smart by not trading the only life they'll have to put it at risk to take care of you. All I'm saying is pick your road. Choose your road. Joshua said, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, I've made a choice and this is my choice. Let me talk to you about serving the Lord if you should pick that road. First thing you should know about is that entering that road is free. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, the Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Could I make the point the Bible doesn't say everyone who joins a church or everyone who lives a good life or everyone who is baptized? It said everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every weekend I share with you the good news. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news, that the road is free to enter. In Isaiah chapter 55, the Bible says, Come, all, who are, who, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Those are all metaphors that refer to being forgiven, to having a relationship with God. You can't buy it. You can't buy it with your life. You can't buy it by giving money. You can't buy it by doing service. The only way to enter the road is by receiving God's free gift of eternal life. And let me tell you something that may sound strange to hear a minister say. If you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, and all you do is receive God's free gift, and you never take another step along that road, God will still love you, he will still forgive you, and he will still take you to heaven. You cannot buy your way to heaven. It is free to enter the road. But Jesus made a clear distinction between two things. And the, the distinction is between entering the road which is free and traveling the destiny of a Christ follower. 
Because living the life, living the road, going down the road of a Christ follower is a very different thing because it is something that costs. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Entering the road to follow Jesus costs you nothing. Traveling that road could cost you everything. But here's the great thing about the cost associated with following Jesus. I've been a Christ follower since I was eight years old. And now at the age of 55, I can tell you a lot of things that I've sacrificed to follow Jesus. But the great thing about anything that it's ever cost me to follow Jesus is it's been matched and exceeded by the one who turns around and blesses me. The God who asks you to sacrifice for him will not allow you to outgive him. And after all these years of following Jesus, I can assure you that I am not following Jesus from a deficit situation. I'm following him from a surplus situation. Choose your road. Number two, continue on your journey. At New Spring, we see so many people who choose to follow Jesus. And I hear so many great stories as I did at the end of the last, last night's services. And so many of you are excited because you've never, you don't have a religious background. You're like me, you don't like religion. And you never really were sure you could have a relationship with God, but somebody invited you here and you connected up with God and, and now you're so excited about the decision that you've made. And almost everyone continues on, but every once in a while it'll kind of break my heart because somebody will get very excited about following Jesus and then they'll sort of drop away. Well, Jesus told a story about that very thing. He, he told stories that people could understand. And he talked about a farmer who was planting seed. And he just talked about, and back in that day, of course, they didn't have massive equipment like we have today. If a man or a woman was going to sow down a field, he or she would have a bag of seeds, and they would just walk out and broadcast the seed. And obviously the seed would land in places that were fortuitous toward growth and places that weren't. So in Jesus' story, he said some of the seed fell on hard-packed path where people had walked and they had so packed down the ground that the ground was impenetrable and the seed couldn't fall into the, to the ground. And then he said some of the seed fell in places where there were a lot of rocks and the earth was not very deep and the seed germinated and plants sprung up. But when the sun came out, because there wasn't depth of earth for the root structure, the plant dried up and died. And then he said some of the seed fell in places where there were weeds, and the weeds choked the plant, and even though it produced fruit, it produced sickly fruit. And finally, he said some of the seed fell in places where the ground was good, and seed grew up and multiplied. So I think a lot of people walked away from Jesus' story and thought, wow, what was that all about? But thankfully, the disciples wanted to know, and so here's how he answered that question. And remember, our idea is if you choose to follow God, continue on the path. Listen to Jesus' explanation. The seeds that fall on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. Time out. Jesus is talking about a seed, and later on he's going to make that tantamount to the message. Guys, let me just tell you something. As much as I love you, I can't change your life. New Spring Church cannot change your life. Religion cannot change your life. A set of rules cannot change your life. There is only one thing that can change your life, and that is the word of God. God's word is the seed. If it gets into your heart, if it gets into your life, it germinates, it produces life. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. 
And Jesus is making that point very clear. The message is the good news of the gospel. And how it interacts in our life depends upon our hearts and what our hearts are like. I don't mean, of course, our physical heart. I'm talking about our inner person. Now, Jesus said this. Occasionally, the message comes to someone whose heart is very hard. It's been packed down. And it falls, but it can't germinate. It can never, it can never penetrate the soil. Here's something that Jesus says that I find intensely interesting. A lot of times people have the idea, well, it's sort of a neutral thing. The seed's going to follow my heart. I'm hard toward it. It doesn't matter. But Jesus said it's not neutral. He said Satan comes and steals it away. In other words, Satan proactively comes into our lives and pulls the word away if we don't, we don't care about it. That's one reason why here at New Spring we try to minimize distraction. I remember a story this happened before I came to New Spring. It was probably 30 years ago. But we were in an inner city church and we had begun a kids' ministry. And I remember a seven, eight year old girl had come to our kids' ministry, loved it, had accepted Christ. And she came to me one time and said, Would you go talk to my mom? And mom lived right around the corner from the church. So I remember my dad, who was lead pastor, and I, we went to the house, and the lady invited us in. She's very nice, and we sat in her living room, and I began to share with her the good news of Jesus, and I wanted to ask her, had she ever accepted Christ? And she said no. And I said, well, would you like to pray to receive Christ? And I prayed just like I do in all of our services. And she said yes. It's been 30 years, but it's as if I can see it right now. I mean, I can still remember what her living room looked like. Just at that moment when she said, yes, I would like to receive Christ, the phone rang. And she got up to answer the phone and talked for about 10 minutes. And when she came back, she said, you know, I think I'd like to wait for a little while. I was disappointed, but I thanked her for her time, and we got up and walked out. Two weeks later, as I said, it was an inner city ministry, and we, we had a bus that would go around and pick up kids. And that particular week, I happened to be riding the bus and I remember a girl got on the bus who lived across the street from this lady, and she asked me, did you hear what happened in the neighborhood last night? I said, no. And it seems that this woman I've been talking to, there was a 16-year-old girl in the neighborhood who was having an affair with the woman's husband, and the night before, she had pulled back the hammer on a Smith & Wesson and fired a bullet into this woman's body and killed her. And I think back on what Jesus is saying here at that moment when I sat in her living room and I said, would you like to pray to receive Christ? And she said, yes. And then the phone rang. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He said, sometimes the seed falls on hard-packed ground and Satan comes and snatches the word away. Then verse 13, the seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while and then they fall away or lose interest when they face temptation. Now, temptation there doesn't mean a solicitation to do evil. It just means when they're challenged. So I want to talk to some of you right now who just recently have invited Jesus Christ into your life. And you feel like, wow, this is the most wonderful way of living. And you feel God in your life. And when you talk to him, he's, it's just, you just know he's there. And when you read the Bible, it's like the words just flash in neon. And it makes sense. And you're thinking, wow, I finally discovered the slipstream of life. I love you so much, and I love you enough to tell you that you're going to be challenged at some point. At some point, you're going to hit something, and you're going to wonder, wow, why would somebody who follows God have to deal with something like this? And Jesus said there are people that hear the word. They're very excited about it at first, but it never really gets down into their core. And when difficult times come, they check out. 
And then he said, the seeds that fall among thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares, that's distractions, and riches, and pleasures of life. And so they never grow into maturity. And then he said, there are seeds that fall on the good, the good ground, and it represents honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. What does that really mean? It means this, when you choose to follow Jesus, it will cost you nothing, but you get on a road, and that road is God's will for your life, God's destiny for you. At times, that destiny will become difficult, but when you stay on the road, you fulfill your destiny, and you get to really enjoy all the good things that God has for you in life. Let me finish out by talking to you about the third thing. Choose your path, stay on the path, finish strong. I don't know when I'm going to finish. I'm 55. Chances are I've ridden up most of my tickets. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe I have six days. Maybe I have six months. Maybe I have six years. Maybe I have 36 years. I have no idea. And neither do you. Who knows when we're going to finish? We may finish today. We may finish years from now. But I know one thing about my life. When I think about best practices... I want to make sure that at some point I don't veer off the road and embarrass myself and embarrass the people who love me. And, and let me just tell you this. And, and I don't know how you are, but I hate to leave money on the table. I really hate to leave time on the table, but it just eats me up to leave opportunity on the table. I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that I've left key opportunities on the table. Dramatic stuff that God wanted me to do to make a difference in the world, but I left on the table. I want to finish strong. This is a good time of year to talk about finishing, isn't it? Because how many of us make New Year's resolutions? They say 91 million Americans make New Year's resolutions, 70 million quit by the end of the first week. (laughs) And and then, of course, there are all of us who are going to go work out. You know, we we ate too much for Christmas. We're going to get in shape. And and those of you who work out, you know what it's like. January, first week in January, it's hard to get a parking place. It's hard to get on an elliptical, it's hard to get on a treadmill, hard to get on a stair climb, you have to wait in line for a machine. Six weeks from now, you can park by the front door, (laughs) right? Finishing. Well, that's not the most important thing in the world, but I want to talk to you about what it takes to finish strong. And and I just want to leave this for you to think about, and, and you can think about your life and flesh these things out, but there are three choices I am convinced that you and I have to make to finish strong. Number one, we have to choose character over emotions. Emotions oftentimes will lead us into making a good change, but that'll be what will keep us from making the change. You can make a change based on emotion, but it is character that will keep you there. Um, Let me tell you what I mean by character. UCLA coach John Wooden, who won so many national championships, he said, reputation is what people say you are, character is what you really are. But the best definition I can give you is character is a set of internal commitments that you make to objective values. Operative word there is objective. Basically what that means is this. You commit yourself to things that are bigger than you are. Things like truth, things like honor, things like hard work. That's something bigger than you are and you aim for those things. This is a good way of illustrating, at least it is to me. There's an old Peanuts cartoon in which, if I have it right, Charlie Brown has shot some arrows into a fence, and he is busy painting targets around the arrows that have landed in the fence. (laughs) And Linus comes up and explains to him that that's not how life works. 
And Charlie Brown says to him, but there's, it's so much easier to hit, a target, hit the target that way. And that's how many of us are. We shoot the arrows into the fence and then we paint the targets around it later. But character says, no, I am committed to some things that are bigger than I am. And then number two, you need to choose sacrifice over commitment. Guys, everything that I've ever experienced in life that's worthwhile requires sacrifice. John Maxwell says it this way, and I want you to see the quote. He said, I believe that most people expect to pay a price to achieve their goals. Yet many people seem to have a vague concept of sacrifice, viewing it as something distant or far off. Consequently, when their goals demand a significant investment, people are bewildered and resist giving up anything. If you desire to finish strong, you need to sacrifice earlier than expected and to give up more than is comfortable. Sacrifice is unpopular today. But here's the interesting thing. Someday, your story is going to be written and my story is going to be written. Maybe not in a book, but our stories are going to be written. I assure you it won't be the comforts that we acquired that tell our story. It'll be the sacrifices that we made. If it, I, again, I'm 55 years old. If you want to come talk to me sometime and say, Mark, tell me about de defining moments in your life. If you want me to tell you about those moments that bring a huge smile to my face and the words just come out in a torrent, it will always be some experience in my life that pushed me to the edge and at a defining moment, I pushed all the chips to the middle of the table. It'll always be a moment of sacrifice. If you and I want to finish strong, we have to choose emotion, or character over emotion and sacrifice over comfort. And then finally... Tenacity over dropping out. Well, we talked today about living smart. Living smart, choose your road, stay on the road, finish strong. Why is that important? Because I could be talking to somebody here today and you say, Mark, listen, I've got my day scheduled already. And really, this sounds very esoteric and very existential. But truth be told, it ain't going to change my life very much. Why should we live smart? Why should you take the time? I mean, why, why should you move from SOP to best practices and decide to live smart? Well, guys, let me throw this out and you see what you think about it. This life is temporary. When this life is over, you're going somewhere. You're going to leave a world behind that will either be better than you found it or worse. And then we're going to live forever somewhere and face our record. And my prayer for you and me today is that we will live a life with few regrets. I've lived long enough to have some regrets. I don't, I don't have anything in my life that would be like a scandal or anything. But the regrets that I have, it's almost like I have a box of regrets in which I think about opportunities that I missed, moments when I choked at times of destiny. And, and I don't want those regrets, and I don't want you to have those regrets. And living smart is what will take you to the place where you can look back on your life at any point, whether it's at the end of your life or the middle or just some junction in life, where you can look back on your life and say, hey, I'm glad for the way I lived my life. I didn't live based on standard operating procedure, but I lived according to best practices. I chose my road. I stayed on the road. And I'm in the process of finishing strong. Just in case you think you have to live a long life to do this, could I close with one of my favorite stories from history? 
There's a story of a guy named William Borden who lived at the beginning of the 20th century. And if the name Borden rings a bell, it's because William Borden was heir to the milk fortune. Born in, born in wealth, born to American business aristocracy, he was slated to live a life of comfort, excess, plenty. But when Bill Borden was 16 years old, his, his family gave him a trip around the world. And as he was traveling around the world, he met many people who didn't know Jesus. And especially he was touched by people who grew up in the Muslim part of the world. And he wanted to go share with them the good news of Jesus. And he came back from his trip around the world at the age of 16. And he told everybody that God is leading him to become a missionary. And his best friend told him he was nuts. He said, are you kidding? I mean, think about it. You got, you got everything to live for. Why would you throw your life away and go somewhere to be a missionary? And it so challenged Bill Borden that he went home and he pulled out his Bible. And he opened the back cover of his Bible. He took out a pen and he wrote two words in the back cover of his Bible. He wrote down the words, no reserve. Well, those of us who love eBay, we know what the term no reserve means. It means you don't have to satisfy any, any level of bid in order to, to buy the product. If something's got no reserve, it goes to the highest bidder. It means that nothing's being held back. And when Bill Borden wrote that in his Bible at the response of his friend who told him he was wasting his life, what Bill Borden was saying was, God, you can have anything you want in my life. Anything you ask me to do, I will do. There's no part of my life that I'm going to say, God, don't touch this part of my life. This is my sex life. God, don't touch this. God, this is, this is my money life. Don't touch this. Bill Borden wrote, no reserves as a 16-year-old kid. God, you can have anything you want. He went on to Yale. I was talking to a friend in between the services, and I said, Bill, William Borden's time at Yale is something that someone should write a book about. He went to Yale University, and he was immediately burdened because he saw so many college students at Yale that just didn't have anything. They, they weren't centered. They didn't, have any, they didn't have any understanding of who God was. They were just living for themselves. And, and so Borden was concerned so much so that he started a Bible study just in his dorm room. And it grew, and more Bible studies grew. By the time Bill Borden was a senior at Yale, 1,000 students of the 1,300 students were in a Bible study that had come out of the one that Bill Borden had started. They were deeply concerned about students on campus. The leaders of the Bible study got together, and they were concerned about students that just were really hard against God. And so they would, they would each take that student on as a project to share with them the good news and to try to encourage them to know God. And every once in a while, they would come up with a student that everybody would just say is a lost cause. There was no chance of reaching this student. And William Borden would always say, I'll take him. I'll take him. And it wasn't just yell. While he was there, he had a burden for people that were downtrodden. He took, he, he took care financially of widows and orphans in the community. And oftentimes he would go down to the bars and guys that were drunk, he would get them out and sober them up and take them home to their families. That's amazing to me for a college student. He graduated as an honor student from Yale. And you can imagine growing up with the Borden name, there were a lot of corporations who saw his 4.0 record at Yale. They saw his magnificent you know, magnetic personality. They wanted William Borden to come to their company. He started getting all kinds of offers when, after all, he had decided he was going to be a missionary. But they were saying, hey, come work for us and we'll give you the moon. 
William Borden went back to his room, took out the same Bible where he had written the words no reserve, opened up the back cover, and underneath no reserve, he wrote down the words no retreats, no retreat. His passion was to go to be a missionary to people in the in part of the in part of China who were Muslim and in order to learn the language he had to stop off in Egypt to learn the language. And while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and William Borden died at the age of 25. And they shipped his body home, and they shipped back his effects, and he'd given away just about everything he owned, all that they shipped back, just a few items of clothing and a Bible. And you can imagine what a lot of people were saying. Some of you are thinking that right now. What a, tr- what a tragic waste. Here's a guy that could have had anything he wanted. He had unlim- unlimited money. Charismatic personality, influential, could have had anything he wanted. And, and after all, t- died at 25? How crazy can you be? When his family got his effects, they found those few items of clothing and they found that Bible and someone thumbed all the way through the Bible and got to the back cover where now there were three expressions. Because underneath no reserve, when he had he'd written when he was 16, And no retreat that he had written when he graduated from Yale was a fresh expression that he had written just a few days before he died. No regrets. No regrets. I know this message has gotten in our chili a little bit. But I I, I want it to. to, in, In an era of believing You can do whatever you want to do without consequence. This message challenges us to realize we're going to get to a destination. And that destination is going to be at the end of the road. And whatever destination you want to go to, you need to choose the road that gets you where you need to be. And then stay on that road. And finish strong. And have the character to say, it's not just emotion here. I'm committed to some things that are larger than me. And I'm going to sacrifice what it takes to get where I need to be. And I'm going to hold on until I get to God's best for my life. And when you and I get to that place, we can write in the flyleaf of our life, no regrets. No regrets. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for teaching us from your word. And and I need to feel this in my life as all of us do. And now I pray that you'll speak to our hearts at this moment of destiny, in Jesus' name, amen. Could be that you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I don't know that I've ever really entered the road. The good news is it's free to get on the road to following Jesus. Jesus has already paid the price. And remember, I read a verse too that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I want to do something I do in every service at New Spring. I want to pray a prayer that invites Jesus into your life. And you can join me in this prayer if you want to. I'll pray it slowly. It's not the words that matters, the big yes that's in your heart. But I'm going to pray it now. And if you want to pray it with me, join me in this prayer, please. Dear Jesus, I know I've done wrong. And I want to start life over again. I know you died to pay for my sins. And you rose from the grave. And today I get off the old road. And I want to get on your road. Thank you for the gift 
of eternal life. I call on you now. Your word says, I am forgiven and saved. Thank you. In Jesus' name.